All right, and welcome to everybody joining us online. Glad you're with us. So this is our Bible Institute, and uh, we have uh, um, a, a fascinating Bible Institute, actually, I think, because there's so many students from all over the world. Uh, there's now 877 students. I've had a, a big surge of students over the last few weeks. So we're moving towards 900, which is cool. They're coming from all over the world. We have a lot of students in uh, all over the continent of Africa and all over, and they're just plugging along and taking classes and excited and moving into ministries, and it's a very cool thing to be a part of. So anybody can join the Bible Institute. It's absolutely free. That's why you get so many students. Um, so, uh, And you can earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree and, and uh, in ministry. And so... Um, I just think it's a cool thing. Or you just take classes if you want. You don't have to be working towards anything. It's all free. You can do that uh, if you're coming here. Uh, these count towards courses. If you want to online, if you want to register online, you don't have to, but you can. And these can count towards courses. So lots of ways to um, get your courses done. Twenty courses will get you an associate's degree. Forty will get you a bachelor's degree. And like I said, the, the big deal is that it doesn't cost any money. It just takes time. And I think that's a good thing. So we're doing... Uh, our course right now through the Old Testament, and we, we just started a, a second course. Uh, we, we did the first part of the Old Testament course. That was one whole course. We went from Genesis to 1 Samuel. Now we're in this next course. We're going to go from 2 Samuel to 2 Kings. We'll get that, and then we'll pick it up from there in course number three, and that will work us through the Old Testament together. So we're taking some time now in, in this part, just because we're, we're sort of working through the monarchy, and it's a very important part of Israel's history. And so we're, we're not going, you know, sometimes in the survey, I'll move through books pretty quick, but uh, we're sort of taking some time to work through. We spent some time in 1 Samuel, need to take some time in 2 Samuel, where the idea of the, uh, uh, the monarchy is established. Remember, <clears throat> the, um, God was and is the king of Israel, but the people basically rejected him as king. They wanted to be like every other nation, and so they insisted that they have a king put over them. Uh, and even though they were told it wasn't going to be a good thing, um, they, they've had it coming. And so Saul was the first king. And Saul started okay, but it went to his head pretty quickly, and he wasn't a good king. Uh, and, and so he did some good things, but he, he wasn't following after God. So fairly early on, um, David was selected as king, but he didn't become king for years. And now we have David as king. And David was first king over just um, uh, Judah, but now he's king over all of Israel. They've, they've reunited uh, the kingdom, and we're moving into the ninth chapter of Second Samuel today. And just uh, historically, this would be 995 B.C. 995 B.C. And, uh, you know, when we started the survey, these are very accurate dates because we, we have some dates established from archaeological discoveries that tie into things that we know in the Scripture. So we can date these things very clearly. And um, this is one of those dates that we have. Uh, moving further back through the history, it gets a little tricky because we're not sure through the genealogies that it's not maybe sometimes a, a grandfather to grandson. It misses a, a beat or if there's not a little bit of gap in the lineage. So... We don't know for exact. But right at this point in time in history, we do know. So this is 995 B.C., which is uh, uh, it's a while ago, but still kind of good to connect with. So uh, introduced into the story now is a, uh, is a young man named Mephibosheth. I've just always liked Mephibosheth's name because it's not one you hear all the time, Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth is one of um, uh, Jonathan's sons. And when uh, all the mess went down with uh, Saul and Jonathan and David and the changeover and everything, um, they, they took off running with Mephibosheth and uh, he, he was fallen on and he, he broke both his legs so he's now crippled in his feet. And he's hiding out because um, it would have been customary for uh, a king to sort of wipe out the, all of the previous line just so there was nobody clamoring for the throne. And remember, he'd, he'd already struggled with one of Saul's sons who had kept the kingdom divided for a while. And this would be Jonathan's son who, in effect, would be in line for um, Saul's kingdom. But Saul is no longer king. But anyway, David... Uh, you know, one of the things you've got to watch about David is David's going to do some really cool things and David's going to do some things that aren't so cool. And I, I tell you this all the time. I love that that's in Scripture for us because I think that describes all of us. Uh, sometimes we're going to get it right and sometimes we're not. And, um, and yet God works through our mess. Uh, and so when you're looking through the Old Testament and you read some difficult stories, um, just understand that, that it's, the, the, it's, through, it's the brokenness of people's lives. And, and it's, it's a big mess. A lot of times it's like a big soap opera that's going on. And yet the reality is that kind of stuff happens sometimes in people's lives. So... In chapter 9, let me start there, verse 1. Uh, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, David and Jonathan were close. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? And he replied, and the king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered, The king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Pretty cool deal, what David just did. He said, you can, all, all, everything that was Saul's is yours, and you will always eat at my table. So uh, there's a picture of there in there of how God restores us in our brokenness, uh, you know, because we're all invited to the table, right? As, as believers, that's part of the big deal. That's the, the, the big banquet. We're all called in to that. God invites us in. And this is sort of a picture of the kindness of God moving in this situation. And David is demonstrating it to Mephibosheth. And then we move into chapter 10 and... Uh, now the kingdom of Israel, they've, they've defeated the Philistines who've been bothering them for years, and now they've got the Ammonites that are causing problems. Uh, and David tries to sort of just be cool with them. Verse 1 of chapter 10, In the course of time the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. And David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So everything was good, but now they're going to have a problem. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun uh, concerning his father. And when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, and cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks and sent them away. 
I'm sorry, I started to laugh because it's a terrible picture and you don't get to say buttocks very often. <laughs> and I knew it was coming. So, so get a picture now. They've, this is, they've humiliated these guys that David sent in peace. He sent a delegation to go and bless these people. He had no ill feeling toward them at all. And they take his men and they completely humiliate them. They, they didn't kill them, but they returned them half-shaved, which was like a huge deal they, they, for them. And, you know, the whole buttocks thing. So anyway, when David was told about this, verse 5, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown <laughs> and then come back. And when the Ammonites realized they had become a stench in David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rahab and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah, with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. So they realize they've got a problem now, and so they hire a big mercenary force, because they don't have enough of one. Their cells, verse 13, Joab, remember he's the commander of the armies of David, and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. So this big mercenary army sees the Israelites coming. They just take off running. As though they don't, they're not going to fight the battle. And, uh, and so the Ammonites flee uh, as well. And um, Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. And after the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer and Arameans, uh, had Arameans brought from beyond the river, and they went to Helam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. Remember, I've told you in the Old Testament, when you're reading all these names, just read it like you know what you're saying. <laughs> just read them confidently, and unless there's a Hebrew scholar in the room, what's going to happen? When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel across the Jordan and went to Helam. And the Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadizar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. <laughs> They finally took the hint. And I don't think the Arameans were going to keep hiring the Ammonites because they just ran every time Israel showed up. So not the best mercenaries that you could get. Now, we move into a big mess of a story. So this is what I'm talking about with soap operas. Uh, and this is chapter 11. And this is the story of David and Bathsheba. And so most of you, if you've read the scripture, you know about this story. And let me tell you where it goes bad. It goes bad here in verse 1. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. That was the problem. David should have just done what kings do and gone out to battle, but instead he hung out and he stayed in Jerusalem. And, and because he was a warrior anyway, he, why he didn't go, it, it, don't know. But uh, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. 
And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So if you're, if you're not seeing what's happening here, uh, obviously you got the first part. So David sees Bathsheba, who's married to Uriah, who's out, and Uriah's out. In, in battle, and he likes Bathsheba and invites her to the palace. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant by David. Um, David immediately goes into cover-up mode, and so he he sends for Uriah the Hittite to come back. And what he's trying to do is get him to go to his house and sleep with his wife, so that he can think that he's the father of this baby. But he runs into Uriah, who, unlike David at this moment, Uriah is a man of integrity, amazing integrity. And, and so David says to go to his house, but Uriah, verse 9, slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Pretty intense what's happening, right? So David said to him, verse 12, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. So now David's trying to get him drunk so he'll go home and sleep with his wife. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So listen to what David does next because that plan's not working. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fierce. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger... When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you to say to him also, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had told him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So, that like a soap opera or what? Did you see the twists in there of David? So he sins, and then he tries to cover it up, and he tries to cover it up, but he runs against a person of integrity. It won't work, so he has him killed. And uh, just think about that. And, you know, and like Joab knows exactly what's going on and what happened. Anyway, God's going to have a little something to say to David, and he does it in chapter 12. And there's a prophet named Nathan 
who shows up to talk to David. Verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children and shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Uh-oh. So that's, he's just telling a story to David of what David had done. And he used terms that upset David. was like, well, that's not right. And all of a sudden now, he gets it. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. So Nathan confronts David. David is made aware of his sin. Remember, David said, whoever did this deserves to die. So he sort of pronounced his own sentence. But uh, Nathan says, God's taken away your sin, so you're not going to die. However, the consequences of that sin have major impacts. And, and they will definitely impact David's house um, through, through his reign. And yet at the same time, there's, there's redemptive movement that takes place because that's who God is. So um, this, this child that... Uh, David and Bathsheba uh, conceived is going to die. Um, but they're going to have another son soon, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon is the third king in, in the monarchy, and Solomon starts out pretty well, and then he kind of falls apart too. But um, there's redemptive in, in it, and um, in a lot of the Psalms, David is dealing with this issue of what he's done. And... Um, What's taking place. And so when you're reading the Psalms, you'll see these things coming up. You'll see David praising God because uh, he realizes how amazing the mercy of God is and what it means. And, and David understands what he deserves, see, because of his sin, that, that, that the consequence, in effect, should be death. And, and when we, we've done our New Testament work, but when you get in there, you know, the, the, Paul says the wages of sin is death. And the reality is our, that's all of our judgment. That's what we deserve because all of us have sinned. And yet, 
Jesus has come and he's taken that off of us. He's paid that price for us. That's what he did at the cross. He, he, he made a way for us so that um, uh, that's no longer our punishment. In fact, he gives us life, eternal life. Uh, certainly, you know, this, this, we're gonna, this body's going to die, but, but we are eternal beings in Christ because of what Jesus has done. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of the love of God for us. And all of that picture of David's mess, and David loves God. It's, it's, he just makes bad choices. But see, that's, that's what happens. All right? So you, you get to see that picture going on and what's happening. And then Second um, Samuel 12, uh, the child becomes sick. And uh, David is pleading for the child. Verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, went into his house, spent the nights laying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. But he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked, yes, they replied. He's dead. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And his servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. There's That verse 23 is fairly significant. Um... What David says, because sometimes when uh, there's there's not a lot of clear scripture about children who are too young to have made a decision to follow Jesus. And people get really upset with that um, because they're looking for those answers. Um, But this is a verse that is very clear, I think, about that, because he's he's saying, look, I know where I'm going to end up and where I'm going. I will go to see my child then. He's going to be in the arms of Jesus, in effect. Um, He's not coming back to me, but I will go to him. So there's a lot of comfort in that verse. And if you ever run across somebody who asks that question, you know, where's where's Bible about what happens with children? Um, That's that's one of those verses. Um, Chapter 12, 24, David um, comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon and the Lord loved him and because the Lord loved him he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah which means friend of God or beloved of God and uh, I put a psalm in there that you can read Psalm 103 and Psalm 51 is another good one that's dealing with his time and with things that are happening and David just crying out to the Lord um Second Samuel 12 continues, 26. Joab's fighting a battle because David hadn't gone with him, and he's about to overcome the Ammonites and capture the royal citadel. And so Joab is a good guy at this point in time. He sends for David and says, you better come, because if I capture this city, they're going to give me all the credit and not you, and you better come. And it's all about you. So David goes, and uh, he, gets the, he does, takes over, and uh, you know, he gets the credit for going in. So Joab is kind of leaning towards him there, giving him room. But now what happens is the consequences of David's actions start coming. And um, uh, it happens through his children. 
And um, he's got lots of sons from different wives and daughters. And there's one son named Amnon. And um, he, well, it says it falls in love in the scripture, but he falls in lust with Tamar, who's uh, one of his sort of half-sisters. He's Absalom's um, sister. Absalom is one of, it's David's oldest son. Amnon becomes so infatuated that he actually um, takes her by force. And um, there's a big plan in that. You can go and read what he does. Um, and and uh, this doesn't fit, sit well with anybody, uh, particularly with Absalom. And so, um, uh, so Amnon rapes Tamar. Absalom, and nothing is done about it. David knows about it, but doesn't do anything about it. Absalom waits for a while uh, to get his chance, and then he uh, waits. He has to wait a couple years because David's aware that there's this tension. And then he finally gets Amnon to a spot where he can have him killed, and he kills him. So now he's got his children are killing one another. Uh, and then Absalom flees. He has to go because everybody knows what he's done. Then he returns um, a couple of years later. And uh, he returns to Jerusalem in chapter 14. David won't meet with him for quite some time. He's there for years. He finally sort of forces his hand. David has to meet with him, but basically says, you know, just kind of stay away from me. And, uh, and then in chapter 15, Absalom conspires to take the throne from David. And he does this by, he goes and he sits out at the gate when anybody comes that has any issues looking for an audience with the king. He kind of intercedes them, intercepts it there, and he deals with them instead. And... Uh, he starts saying, well, you'll never get to see the king. He's too busy, but I'll, let me see what I can do. And by doing that over a period of years, he wins the favor of the house of Israel. And then he sort of stages a coup and um, they make him king in Hebron. And uh, David flees Jerusalem because of Absalom coming back after him. Um, and all of that prophecy that Nathan had, Absalom then um, goes and uh, when David leaves Jerusalem, he leaves his ten concubines there to watch over the palace. And Absalom takes them as, and he sleeps with them. It was, a, it was a sign that he was now king. And he does it in front of all Israel. So you can see now this soap opera that's going on is just having this huge impact uh, in every way. David gets a spy into the camp um, to sort of help him in the process in 2 Samuel 15. And um, he's pretty successful. And they listen to him. And uh, he solves, uh, he helps for a little while, saves some problems. But um, Absalom is all after David, and uh, he's going to wipe him out in the process. And that's kind of where we leave it for today. And we'll pick it up with the rest of the story there in uh, the situation. But big, big mess. Um, so, so we're forgiven of our sin, but sometimes there's consequences that we have to deal with. Um, and, and that's so we don't keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, if it, there wasn't consequences, sometimes we wouldn't learn, right? We get that. And I've talked to you about the dynamic in the kingdom of, of sowing and reaping. You know, you reap what you sow in the kingdom. People always want to just put that on money. But uh, it's, it's not. The, the whole kingdom is that, that if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're sowing into your life things that you shouldn't be doing, you will reap those consequences. It's a, it's a kingdom dynamic. Um, but if you're sowing in the things that you should be doing, um, you know, why we don't get away from living in a fallen world and having issues, you don't have this kind of mess that happens that we so often have to deal with. Anybody here ever done something you wish it had and had, had a mess that resulted from it? I have. 
So we all get that. So anyway, it sort of points us in the right direction and why we need to be yielding to the Holy Spirit and listening for Him and doing the, the thing that you know, we know we're supposed to do. When we mess up, we go to God and we, we, we agree with Him that He was right, we were wrong, and He empowers us to go and do the next right thing and we learn over time. But we'll end it there for tonight. I know that's a lot of teaching. If you're watching on the video, thanks for watching and we'll get back together next week. Thanks for watching this broadcast from Keys Vineyard Community Church in Big Pine Key, Florida. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information, log on to keysvineyard.com. We'll see you next time.